0: Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Cliff Notes on the Global Manufacturing Picture. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. It is 3 p.m. on the east coast of the United States, and we are broadcasting live from the Washington, D.C. metro area. There's going to be nothing typical about this episode for weeks, months, we have been talking about supply chains. Most of the time when the economy turns, particularly off of a bad downturn, it's the strength of demand that matters. But as anybody who has tried to shop for anything or tried to hire somebody, you at least has a visceral sense of there is something very egregiously wrong with these economy supply networks. And that's what we're going to talk about today, not just talk about it in the general present tense analytical sense of what's going on with supply chains, although we will certainly do that, but we're going to take a look a little deeper. We're going to take a look at technology. We're going to take a look at policy. We're going to think a little bit ahead. Supply chains are, you know, part of the new normal. The old normal was... You know, something from a very long time ago, and we're gonna see our supply networks, not only as they're stressing us now, but what they're gonna look like in the future. And it'd be hard to get a better guest on my show to do that than Stephen Ezell. He is Vice President of Global Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. ITIF is a Washington, D.C.-based technology and economic policy think tank. Stephen focuses there on science, technology, innovation policy, as well as international competitiveness, trade, and manufacturing policy issues, a whole host of critical issues that really, in many ways, tie together. He is the author with the Institute's director, Dr. Robert Atkinson, of Innovation Economics, The Race for Global Advantage, published by Yale in September of 2012. He is also the co-author of Innovate, Innovating in a Service-Driven Economy, Insights, Application and Practice, published in November 2015 by Palgrave. Mr. Rizel has testified on topics Including U.S. competitiveness, innovation, manufacturing, and trade policy before the U.S. Congress as well as the U.S. International Trade Com- Commission. Many of you will recognize him from his articles in the popular press. He has appeared in, his articles have appeared in Forbes, The Hill, Roll Call, The Futurist, and The International Economy, among others. Stephen came to ITIF from Peer Insight an innovation research and consulting firm that he co-founded in 2003. He previously has worked in the new product development group at NASDAQ. Stephen holds a BS from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University with an honor certificate from Georgetown's Landegar International Business Diplomacy Program. We really have one of Washington's leading lights, on innovation thinking and with what is going on with our supply networks and supply chains we really need it Steven welcome to the program
1: well Cliff thank you for the kind introduction and thank you so much for having me on
0: my pleasure let's start with the obvious question of today manufacturing supply chain disruptions are in the news in some form in some way right now What's going on? What are, simplify it, what are the, let's call them the core failures. What core failures are most responsible for these massively disrupted supply networks?
1: Well, listen, I think most immediately is that COVID-19 induced disruptions to anticipated supply and demand curves from many industries have been part of the massive disruption and there's no better industry to look out there than automotives. So what happened after the pandemic hit last spring, you had the auto companies actually shut down production for several weeks in April. Of course, with the economic cratering and the decrease in anticipated demand, they also started to slash their demand forecast, including their projections for semiconductor needs, right? So they canceled a lot of those orders. Well, what happened was when the economy started to rebound more quickly than expected in the fall, what the automakers discovered was that uh, the missing uh, demand from their industry had been filled by other industries, uh, notably the ICT sector and the massive new demand for laptops, tablets, smartphones, all the things that enabled us to work and study from home during the pandemic. Uh, So that when the demand curve changed, and now late last year, the automakers uh, thought the vaccines coming out, the economic recovery proceeded much more quickly than anybody anticipated. Uh, They resubmitted their orders, but it takes about six months to fill uh, new orders in the auto sector. And uh, that was responsible for for a lot of what's happened uh, with the automotive semiconductor shortage that makes cause a shortfall of as many as 1.2 million vehicles this year. Now, that said, I think there are some other longer-term structural factors that are disrupting supply chains. And that was the focus of an executive order that the Biden administration issued in its very first days for a 100-day supply chain review of four critical industries – Notably, active pharmaceutical ingredients, APIs, critical minerals, semiconductors, and large capacity batteries, like those used in electric vehicles. And what that study, which was released on June 8th of this year, found uh, was actually five key vulnerabilities in supply chains for those industries that are hindering U.S. production. Uh, First, insufficient U.S. manufacturing capacity, characterized by hollowing out of U.S. domestic production and innovation capacity, over the past several decades, and a sense that America has been agnostic for far too long where production occurs in the global economy. Uh, Second, misaligned incentives in short-termism in in private markets. A report found that private companies weren't really always internalizing uh, uh, supply chain risk, uh, that they were far more focused on supply chain efficiency than redundancy or resiliency necessary, Uh, and uh, a real increasing geographic concentration of global chain. So, uh, for instance, McKinsey found recently uh, 180 products across global value chains for which one single country accounts for more than 70% of exports. And so this geographic concentration uh, was a risk factor as well. So, no, I think it's a combination to answer a question, Cliff, of kind of this this immediate COVID-19 disruption, but revealing underlying structural gaps that have rendered America unable to for instance supply itself with critical needs for personal protective equipment.
0: You know, as a program host, I make it a point to stay connected with conversations and understand at least the theme of conversations that emerge as we go from period to period. And the one thing I am noticing in reading that in this post, you know, this early post-pandemic post trade war world, we might very well see an intensification on the discussion of the issue of regional supply chains versus global supply chains. The risks of global supply chains versus the you know the, the safer regional supply chains, but you may not get the benefit of globalizing your supply networks. Do you think that in the – what's your guess? Do you think that in the coming years, regionalization of supply chains are going to trump globalization of supply chains?
1: You know, I'm not sure that regionalization is going to trump or replace globalization, but it's certainly going to become a far more increasing trend. You know, it's important to recognize that even the Biden administration's supply chain review report noted explicitly that, quote, it is neither possible nor desirable to produce all essential American goods domestically. And, you know, what? we've got to recognize that globalized supply chains have produced tremendous benefits for the global economy. Like if you look at semiconductors, it's the world's fourth most globally traded product. You have companies – uh, from 25 nations involved in the key facets of the production chain, from R&D, design, fabrication, to uh, package, assembly, and test. And it's the globalization, the specialization, the division of labor, the economies of scale that have enabled that industry uh, to keep up with Moore's Law, uh, to have a, um, a, a kind of 100,000-fold gain in processor speed and a having of, of the cost of some over the past 20 years, right? So there's a lot of good that that globalization has brought. Now, that said, I think certainly we're now seeing a much greater push by nations to attract more high-value-added manufacturing to their shores and to onshore to regionalize. So, for instance, a, a number of countries, including Australia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the United Kingdom, and even the United States, have all, within the past half a year, introduced kind of formally articulated manufacturing or supply chain reshoring strategies, right? Uh, so, absolutely, we're starting to see policymakers uh, focus on this more. You're seeing companies focus on it more, right? So a lot of companies have kind of announced a, a China plus one strategy. They're not leaving China necessarily, but, you know, they're looking for uh, another regional location of production, right? Um, you know, a McKinsey report estimated that, uh, as much as 16 to 26 percent of global goods exports, as much as $5 trillion, could conceivably move to new countries over the next five years. And all that is going to be a sign of increasing regionalization.
0: Let's bring technology into the conversation. You've written about this. As is the case in so many areas, technology is going to dictate the future of supply chain architecture beyond this interesting, confusing period. Now, two areas of technology in particular are critical for supply chains, the cloud and artificial intelligence. Could you just briefly comment on the importance of each for the future of our supply chains?
1: Absolutely. Well, let me give you my read on what transpired in the global manufacturing economy over the past 30 years. In the 70s and 80s, you know, we offshored a lot of manufacturing to Asia where we had low labor-cost economies and we were doing these large production runs with lot sizes of 1 million units or more think the digital technologies, the smart manufacturing of today, AI, as you said, IoT, cloud, big data, robotics, 3D printing, et cetera, that's going to increasingly democratize production and allow mass customization where we have one million unit production runs with lot sizes of one, right, kind of, you know, kind of personalized products. And and these technologies you're talking about are going to confer the ability to increasingly replace labor with technology like robotics and capital as essential production inputs. And over time, this should make manufacturing more competitive in what traditionally has been higher cost production environments like the United States uh, or, or Europe, for instance. Uh, But if your audience is interested, Cliff, uh, I call out two recent ITIF reports on these topics. In 2019, we wrote a report titled, How AI Will Transform the Manufacturing and Workforce of the Future as well as one on how cloud computing enables modern manufacturing. And a good example from that report is that one major automaker, uh, which essentially implemented uh, kind of a cloud IoT solution, uh, affecting every piece of production equipment and every piece of material moving down the line with, like, ARFA tags, uh, so they could detect the slightest of, uh, like, a product coming down the production line that had the slightest most manufacturing of an era. What they found was that their implementation of an IoT and data analytics capability cost them $350 million, but generated cost savings of over $2 billion in the ensuing five years for an ROI of 300%. And likewise, with AI and supply chains, Uh, for instance, when the pandemic hit, uh, Nike used AI-driven predictive analytics that automatically started recruiting products from brick-and-mortar stores to e-commerce locations. Uh, and kind of reduce production and offer a of markdowns. So before any human at Nike was thinking about these things, their AI-driven systems were uh, shifting supply throughout their supply chain because they were already seeing the impact.
0: Yeah, okay. Let, let's challenge the whole system for a second. That, that's the the value of a of a conversation like this is you can sort of take things to the edge. And I maintain that current disruptions, supply chain disruptions, are calling the lean, just-in-time production model into question. This will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Let me ask you, do you think it's possible that the advance of supply chain technology is going to eliminate the need for or the wisdom of a JIT paradigm where you have – where you, you know, shoot for minimizing work and process inventories. Is that whole way of producing going to become antiquated as this technology sort of, um, you know, uh, takes supply chains into the future?
1: Well, you know, I, I see it cutting both ways. You know, I, I had that chance to do an Industry 4.0 tour of Austria a couple of years back, and I was visiting uh, one of the largest brake manufacturers, the key, you know, show one supplier to – Mercedes-Benz and BMW, and what was interesting was that they told me that BMW operates a combat information center in Munich, Germany, where they know the real-time production status of 600 pieces of equipment at suppliers across Europe uh, that were making the most critical inputs to the I-8. So they didn't want to call from a supplier saying that the machine was down, your brake pad's not going to get there. The point I'm making is that increasingly competition in industrial ecosystems will become about the ability to orchestrate entire supply chains more efficiently and effectively than your competitors can. And artificial intelligence is one technology that's going to have a critical role in enabling that. So I don't think that just in time is necessarily done. I think we have to get much smarter about it, right? So – You know, a really interesting example, again, comes from the current automotive semiconductor shortage. So why does Toyota have a four-month stockpile of chips? And the answer was, well, they – not only understood that semiconductors now are one of the most critical inputs to a vehicle because 40% of the value of the car is now ICTs, but they realized that these semiconductors have a very high value-to-weight ratio. So it didn't cost a lot from an inventory point of view to stockpile semiconductors like it does, like, bulky things like car seats. So they completely (laughs) reimagined their just-in-time system in a kind of different way, right? Uh, And I think, you know, in contrast uh, – what Detroit didn't recognize was that they've moved to being price makers, to price takers in a lot of markets, including semiconductor. So I don't think it means just-in-time is over, but I do think it means we're going to have to start rethinking in a much more sophisticated way about our just-in-time strategies.
0: Let's let's now jump into uh, the area of policy, and I'm going to ask I'm going to ask two policy questions. First, a general one, and then we'll get into a specific policy area. Uh, generally speaking, I think that current supply chain troubles are just raising the issue of public policy and its role in supply chain strength um, and stability. Normally, we think of economic policy as, as being a set of tools to manipulate demand. But right now, would you say is there a role for the public sector in the health of our manufacturing supply chain networks, generally speaking?
1: Absolutely. And this 100-day supply chain review that the Obama administration has just released calls out six categories of recommendation in those ways uh, across a range of issues from uh, rebuilding U.S. production and innovation capabilities uh, to supporting the development of markets with high-road production models, labor standards, treating workers as assets, not cost, leveraging the government's role as a, as a market actor of a key procurer of technology, strengthening international trade rules. Uh, So, yes, there's there's an awful lot that government can and should be doing, uh, both to help the private sector mitigate supply chain risk uh, and also to bolster uh, U.S. domestic production capacity. I'll I'll just call out a couple of policy recommendations from the report that I thought were of particular interest. Uh, First, uh, the White House has now established a supply chain disruption task force, which will provide an all-of-government response to address near-term supply chain challenges. And the report calls for Congress to invest $50 billion in a new supply chain resilience program uh, to monitor, analyze, and forecast U.S. supply chain vulnerabilities. And there are other really cool recommendations I'd commend to your audience, uh, things like uh, developing a U.S. development finance corporation to support supply chain resilience, uh, expanding the U.S. export-import bank's ability uh, to, to, to invest. Uh, so I won't belabor the uh, close to 50 policy recommendations, but there's an awful lot uh, here that um, effective policy can do.
0: Now, for the second policy question, we have to focus on semiconductors. Uh, you know, a constant theme of, of even of our discussion right now, because the shortage has been a particularly egregious job-killing shortage. So I'm going to ask you about the recently Senate-passed. U.S. Innovation and Competitiveness Act, which proposes fifty-two billion dollar a fifty-two billion dollar investment in the U.S. semiconductor industry. Give give our listeners a sense of what's in this legislation and why it's needed.
1: Well, you know, Cliff, you said it with with the auto sector, right? We've seen that semiconductors are foundational uh, to virtually every other downstream. Uh, Industry and the economy. Uh, You know, a recent study estimates that fully 50% of all value created uh, in the global economy over the next decade will be created digitally uh, from the ability to extract information uh, or value from from information and data in real time. So. Uh, the ability of a country uh, to have competitive industries, uh, strong national security, and a vibrant economy uh, depends on having a robust semiconductor sector. Uh, And the reality is that while the United States uh, still does lead in semiconductor R&D and design, especially like on the south side, um, we've seen America's share of global semiconductor production fall from 37% in 1990 to just 12% today. And moreover, like on the logic side of the industry, uh, the US has fallen off the world's leading edge, uh, with Intel struggling to get from 10 nanometer to 7 nanometer, uh, while uh, the island of Taiwan alone today makes 92% of the world's most sophisticated semiconductor chips, right? So there's much we need to do both on the production side and uh, the innovation side. And so that's why. Uh, the CHIPS Act, which was incorporated into the Senate passed, uh, United States Innovation and Competition Act, uh, calls for a $52 billion investment to support the sector. Uh, this is a combination of about 10 billion dollars for R&D and innovation, uh, things like developing a new national semiconductor technology consortium, uh, creating a new uh, manufacturing USA institute for a kind of an advanced packaging national manufacturing institute. And then there's about $39 billion uh, to provide grants to states uh, to attract semiconductor fabs. Uh, a recent study from the Boston Consulting Group estimated that as much as 40% of the total cost of ownership over 10 years of a smart metro fab uh, in, in the United States compared to other countries can be explained by the incentives, like for land, labor, land utilities, et cetera, that other nations offer. So the idea behind this incentive program is to uh, provide federal funding to states so that they can offset other nations' incentives in these areas to make the U.S. a more attractive location for some like micro manufacturing.
0: Final question for Stephen Azell. With supply chains becoming more sophisticated over time, with supply chain policy becoming more of an element of economic policy in the future, very likely We can't help but talk a little bit about data. Data, if we're going to have a policy for supply chains, if we're going to have more sophisticated supply chains, there's going to be a need for data on supply chains. So I'm going to ask you, and I understand that some of this is just speculating, but in your view, what kind of new data right now, if any, do we need on U.S. manufacturing supply chains. What I'm really asking is, what do we need to measure that is not being measured right now?
1: Well, you know, that's interesting, Cliff, because the final recommendation in the Biden supply chain review was actually uh, to create a data hub to monitor some near-term supply chain vulnerabilities and to provide a central place uh, across the federal government to kind of track uh, the supply and demand disruptions. Uh, but I think there are a couple specific data points that we need to do a better job capturing. And that's endemic of the fact that the United States is really underinvested in its statistical and analytical capabilities over the past several decades. But a couple things in particular. Uh, first, um, the Commerce Department Census Bureau and the Bureau of Economic Analysis need to work together to develop a better corporate reporting system. Uh, that asks questions of companies about their offshore investment by U.S. headquartered enterprises. Uh, that would give us a more comprehensive understanding of our investments in supply chain, as well as our trade investment relationships with countries like China. Also, um, there are a number of analytical programs that we used to have in the federal government that we no longer do. For instance... The BEA no longer measures uh, of manufacturing foreign direct investment and can't distinguish between green-filled new plant investment in the United States and the foreign purchases of existing U.S. establishments. Uh, likewise, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, no longer uh, collects state-level data on manufacturing property, plants, or equipment. Uh, And the International Labor Comparisons Program at BLS, which used to produce timely, high-quality international comparisons of labor force productivity, hourly compensation, and prices for a number of industrialized countries, was actually terminated. So uh, there's a lot of data our government used to collect. Uh, We no longer do, and uh, we need to uh, reinvest in these capabilities if we're going to have a much better picture of um, how supply chains are operating and how to forestall disruptions in the future.
0: Stephen Ezel. You gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Cliff, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Folks, we are gonna continue our deepening discussion of manufacturing's future. As we get out of the pandemic, we can start looking once again at deeper issues that are gonna affect the performance of manufacturing, not only today, but in the years ahead. I'm looking forward to our August episode, where my guest will be Eric Tuning, a partner in McKinsey & Company. Until then, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you and talking to all of you in the very near future. Join us for our August episode. This is Cliff Waldman saying, I'll talk to you real soon.